As we begin a new year, I always like to look back over the past year and see how the Lord has blessed, and yet looking forward into the next year to see how he would want us to work even better, to recommit ourselves, to make up for the things that we didn't do, so to speak, over the past year. For some reason, over the last few days, I've been thinking about investments. Not that I have any money to invest. You know, we all invest things. It may not be money, but did you know that the Bible speaks a lot about investments? It does. If you have your Bible, you can turn to uh, Proverbs 28, 22. I'll read it here. A man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. The Bible speaks many times, not just here, but many times about those who hurry to get rich. We say now, we call it a get-rich-quick And we always put the word scheme after the end of it because it's a scheme. Somebody else is getting rich quick, not getting scammed, right? Uh, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And I actually shared these concepts with, uh, uh, with the co-worker that came into my office. You know... If you think you can put in a $100 today and tomorrow it's going to be worth $500, the way I see life, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) He who hastens to be rich will come to poverty. Now, of course, we know that money itself is not evil, but it's the love of money. As Christina was talking about in the Sabbath school, the greed, the selfishness, the materialism, this focus on the material things as the of utmost importance in our society, that is the root of all kinds of evil. And making money, making material things the object of our pursuit will always get us into trouble. You know, on the other hand, Jesus tells a very interesting parable in Matthew 25. And turn with me there, if you will. Uh, in your Bibles, to Matthew chapter 25. He tells the story, the parable, of a wealthy man who was going on a long journey. I'll pick up actually in verse 13 of Matthew 25. Watch, therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Now, presumably this wealthy man had eight talents. Now, what is a talent? A talent is a, is a weight, a measure, measurement of weight, maybe about 70 some pounds, uh, in, in today's, uh, but it, In this sense, this was a talent of some precious metal, probably gold, maybe silver, um, and depending on whether it was gold or silver, it would have been worth a lot more. Um, If you figure it was gold, it was probably worth more than a million dollars in today's money. If it was silver, it might have been worth, you know, a lot less. 
but a lot of Bible scholars have said this was probably one talent was probably the equivalent of what a person, a working man could make, could earn, working for about 20 years. So regardless, this was a significant amount of money. He calls his servants together and he entrusts them with thousands, possibly even millions of dollars in today's money. He doesn't really say anything more to his servants. He doesn't give them explicit instructions. He just says, take care of it. He doesn't even tell them exactly when he's going to come back. But they are still his servants. He goes, and they know that they are all expecting that he will return at some point and demand an account and demand a reckoning for these talents, this money that he has given to them. And then picking it up in verse 16, Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, it says, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received the five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So this, this first servant takes this, these talents, and it doesn't say exactly uh, what he had done, what he did with them, but it says that he traded with them. He, he invested them. You know, whenever you invest something, you take a risk, like I said. Now, it doesn't say that he, he speculated on the stock market. It doesn't say, you know, that he took it to Vegas and gambled with it. But that would have been, what we say, uh, a, a daring risk. A, uh, but after a long time, he eventually doubled it. He, he earned 100% interest over however many years that his master had, had been gone. And he came back. He didn't keep it to himself. He said, here's the five that you gave me, and here's the other five that came from trading it. He didn't take it to himself because it was all of his master's money. And he gave it all to his master. Here's what was yours with interest. And the same way in verse 22, the same way the one who received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. And he gets the same message. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been made faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, it's interesting. You would think if he had the eight talents, he would have distributed them equally, you know, give two and two-thirds to, to each servant. Why, why did he give more to one and less to one? There's a key word here in verse 15. According to his own ability. It's very interesting that he didn't treat each of his servants equally. It is as if he knew already which of his servants were able to handle five talents? Which one was able to handle two talents? 
and which one could only be entrusted with one talent. And yet he expected the same. He expected each of his servants to be faithful in investing his talent. Finally, we come to the servant who had received only one talent. And when he had received the one talent, verse 24, he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, here you have what is yours. Now, was he, was this servant particularly embezzling the money? Did he take it and, and waste it? No, he, he had, he had the money. All the, all of the money, that whole talent was, was there just as good as it was when his master left it. But what he had failed to do was he had failed to improve it. He said he was afraid. He was, he was scared to take a risk. And so because of his fear, and shall I add, because of his laziness, he simply refused to do anything with it. He hid it in the earth. And when the master comes back, he makes this excuse. I knew you were a hard man. I knew you'd be very angry with me if I had lost this money. So I kept it in the safest place that I could. But I didn't invest it. I didn't trade with it. And I haven't gained anything from it. In verse 26, but his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has, will be taken away. You have not invested. You have not improved. You know, it's interesting when I read this parable and I think about us. Because, you know, Jesus wasn't so much talking about handling money. Although I'm sure that money perhaps is included in this if if we happen to have a significant amount of money who has given it to us is it because i earned it because i got it somehow or because the lord has entrusted it to us but he's not so much speaking about money as he is about all of the things all of the gifts that he has entrusted to us who is the wealthy man who went on a long journey? Who does it symbolize? Who does it represent? Jesus here is the one who is teaching his disciples. A very short time after this, he dies. He's crucified. He's resurrected. And what happens after the resurrection? He ascends to heaven. He goes on a long journey. Is he coming back? Come on, friends. Is Jesus coming back? Yes. Amen. Amen. Jesus is coming again. Do we know when he's coming? No, we don't. But, but we know the signs. We can see the signs all around us and we know he is coming soon. Very, very soon. In fact, this whole chapter here in Matthew 25, what comes right before Matthew 25? Matthew 24, right? 
<laughs> Those of you who can do math, you know what I'm talking about. Matthew 24. What is Matthew 24? It's all the signs of Christ's coming. And the first parable here in Matthew 25 is the parable of the ten virgins. The five wise and the five foolish virgins. The second coming. This whole thing is in the context of the second coming in the first verse that I read here. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And then he immediately launches into this parable, the parable of the talents. So Jesus is the one who has gone on a long journey. And he is coming again. And do we not, as a church, as a people, teach the message of the judgment of God that is coming? In fact, a pre-Advent judgment that has already begun. Does not the rich owner here in this, in this parable come back and require an account of those talents. My friends, what account will you give of the talents that God has entrusted to you? You know, I find it kind of funny as a, as a side note. In the English language, we actually have adopted this word talent into the English language. The, the word started in Greek, and it was the Greek form of the word talent, the same, the same word. It was adopted into the Latin, and now we have the same word in English. But if I say, my wife is very talented, you would immediately think not that she has lots and lots of pounds of gold in her house, what, 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 what am I saying? If I say that my wife is talented, I might say, she, and it's true, she's talented at playing the piano or she's talented in, in cooking. What do I mean? She has a special gift. She has a special ability. And it's, it's kind of funny if you look up, and I looked it up in the dictionary, the etymology of the word talent actually comes directly out of this parable. We've gotten the meaning from the symbolic meaning that Christ was using in the word for the word talent, which means money in the original language. And we've gotten the meaning in the English language of the symbolism that Christ was trying to convey. But I think it's, I think it can be confusing too, because we read the word talent and we think of natural abilities. And I think that the talents here refer to that, but a lot more than that. They really refer to anything that the Lord has entrusted with us as a gift as a resource, as something that we can use to improve, to invest for his kingdom and for his glory. What are some of the talents that we have? I don't mean just like playing the piano or cooking, although those are, those are good things. Those are, those are gifts. What about hospitality? What about the, some people have the ability to do Technical things. I like to do a lot of technical things. Some people have the ability to do mechanical things. Uh, some people have the ability, and this is another thing my wife is really good at, coordinating, you know, events and dinners and, and weddings or any kind of thing that, that goes on. They're just really good about thinking about all of the details. And then there's some people like me. I could forget about all the details. I just like to have the big picture. <laughs> But besides those abilities, what are some other things? 
that we all have. There was one thing that every one of us who is living, who is breathing, has. It's not money, because some of us have a whole lot more of that than others have. But it's time. You and I live, and if this thing called time, and I used to think, and I, I still kind of think it's true, that the word time is one of those more, most difficult words to define. It's like this continuing progression of the present. And forever, whether we're conscious of it or not, it marches forward. And once it is past, I cannot go back. I can't go back even one second and unsay a word that I just said. There have been a few times I wished I could. I can't go back and unbreak a bone that I've just broken or undo an injury that I have just caused. I can't go back and reclaim an hour that I've spent, that I've wasted. What are you doing with your time? And you know, because of the life that we live, because of the world that we live, because of the very real fact that we are mortal, we do not have an unlimited supply. It's a slender thread that one day, sooner or later, will run out. We hope and look forward to the very soon coming of Jesus. We look forward to a time when there will be no more death or sin. But at that time, there will also be no more decisions made for or against Christ. There's a time coming very soon when it says that Michael will stand up and say, He that is holy, let him be holy still. He that is filthy, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. But until that time, what are you doing? What am I doing to help others to make a decision for him? There's a poem that I read long ago. I've read it several times since, but I like to, I like to think of it. I'd like to share it with you. I've only just a minute, only 60 seconds in it, forced upon me, can't refuse it, didn't seek it, didn't choose it, but it's up to me to use it. I must suffer if I lose it, give an account if I abuse it. Only just a little minute, but eternity is in it. Our time belongs to God. Every moment is His, and we are under the most solemn obligation to improve it to His glory. Of no talent He is given will He require a more strict account than of our time. The value of time is beyond computation. Christ regarded every moment as precious, and it is thus that we should regard it. Life is too short to be trifled away. We have but a few days of probation in which to prepare for eternity. We have no time to waste, no time to devote to selfish pleasure, no time for the indulgence of sin. It is now that we are to form characters for the future, immortal life. It is now that we are to prepare for the searching judgment. The human family have scarcely begun to live when they begin to die and the world's incessant labor ends in nothingness, unless a true knowledge in regard to eternal life is gained. 
The man who appreciates time as his working day will fit himself for a mansion and for a life that is immortal. It is well that he was born. I ask myself, and I ask you as well, how do you use your time? How do you improve the little moments? I always say I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time to get everything done. I'm always busy. And I'm not saying we should be always busy. In fact, it probably would be, do well for many of us if we were less busy. But how do we improve those little moments? I read a story once of a man. He waited every day for the bus. Every day he would stand here, maybe five minutes, maybe six or seven minutes, maybe only two or three minutes, until the bus would come and pick him up and take him on his way. But right next to the road, right next to where he would wait, was this ugly brown patch of dirt. So one day he got this idea. And as he went on his way to the bus stop, he took with him a little trowel. And as he was waiting there that day, instead of just standing there idling, he took his trowel and he started to dig up that dirt, break up the little cl- the clods and as best he could with a little tool and stir up the soil and make it ready. And the next day, he brought some seeds and he planted in that soil that he had broken up. And day after day, in just the three minutes or five minutes that he was waiting there, patiently, one, one little thing at a time, those little plants started to spring up. By the end of the season, instead of waiting there by a patch of brown dirt, he waited for the bus. Not just he, but everyone else, admiring the beautiful garden that he had planted in five minutes. How are you improving those five minutes? Are you wasting them? I'm talking to myself. I have this habit. Call out the phone. Get on Facebook. Hmm, what are my friends doing? You know? Or just... The alarm goes off, hit snooze. Alarm goes off again, hit snooze. I'm talking to myself, okay? But what about you? What about us? How are we investing? What talents do you have? Yes, in the parable, some were given more and some were given less. But that wasn't the point. The point was how did they use them? And in that great day when Christ returns and demands an account, how have you used your time? How have you used that which I have entrusted to you? What will you say to him? Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. This word here, I looked it up in the original language. Some translations say, making the best use of the time, which is true, but the original language uses the same word for redeem, to buy it back. How can we redeem the time? How can you go back to the past and buy back a minute 
or an hour or a day or a year that you've squandered. My friends, you can't go back. You can't get that time back. But the only way in which you can redeem it is to make the best use of that which you still have. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. How are you using your time? You know, Christina and I, uh, in talking about our New Year's resolutions, what do we want to do differently this year? And I'm just being honest with you all. But the thing that Christina and I want to do more than ever is to be consistent every day, to spend time in God's Word, to read and to pray together. Not just a quick little prayer as we're rushing out the door or a quick little prayer as we're going to bed, but to sit down together and read together. Not just separately, but together too, both. And that's the New Year's resolution that we made. What New Year's resolution are you going to make? How will you use your time today? Loving Father in heaven, Lord, as you have given us, each one of us, special gifts, special talents, and more than that, you've given us time, time to improve for you. Help us, Lord, not to waste it, but help us to take time, to take the time to be holy, to take the time to speak with you, and to take the time, most of all, to tell others about your wonderful love and your soon return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.